Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the New Statesman Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire, and today I'm joined by my colleague Stephen Bush, Anoush Chikalian and Alva Ray to discuss when will this all be over and just what has the government got right. So the big headline from the latest number 10 press conference, which will have been the night before some listeners hear this or, or two nights before some others, was from the chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, who gave a clearer indication than has been given before of how long social distancing measures in whatever form will have to go on for. And he said the next calendar year. And of course, we've we've had that followed up by Nicola Sturgeon today, saying that they'll have to go on at least till the end of the year, probably into the next year. So we're getting more of an idea of how long this sort of new normal is going to go on for. But I don't know how clear you guys thought that those two those two statements were, because it's clear they're trying to sound a bit more upfront about how we're in it for the long haul. But they're, they're also not really caveating that with, well, what does some form of social distancing measures mean in the future? Is it basically the same as now or is it going to be like Macron is planning in France where, you know, he wants to try and open the schools by by the 11th of May and then even there's talk of being able to put big events on and things by, by June. Did you have more questions than than answers from, from those statements, guys? Sturgeon's intervention, I think, has been certainly the, appears to be the, the most honest of any UK politician when it comes to the trade-offs of an exit policy so far. But even then, I think, because her statement is talking about, well, we're keen to ease the restrictions. Again, that if you say to someone, what does easing the restrictions look like? Most people will tell you, well, it means, you know, I can go out on a Friday night, to quote the comedian Matt Ford, I can go to Pizza Express and have a bottle of red and a massive Peroni. I think a lot of people, if you said, <laughs> what, does, what does easing the restrictions look like? Or it would mean, you know, I'm going back to the office with the rest of my with the rest of my colleagues. And it's clear that any easing of the restrictions isn't going to go that far that quickly. And then Sturgeon also said, well, obviously lockdown as we know it now would be liable to return at any given moment. So I think when Sturgeon's saying, you know, it's incumbent upon us as politicians to be transparent as to our exit strategy and treat the public like grown-ups, I almost think continuing to call it an exit strategy is sort of a sort of consoling fiction, right? Because it's not 
we're not exiting we're not exiting from anything beyond this particular tranche of restrictions that Sturgeon herself is admitting that we might return to at any given moment. You know, the idea of an exit means, you know, without wanting to sound like an English undergraduate, like, you know, it conveys a sense of liberation when really that's not what's coming in any circumstance, even in the lockdown doves or the angry backbenchers in the 1922 committee are listened to, then it's clear that we're not going to go back to normal immediately. And I almost think the lang- persisting in the language of exit strategies and easing of restrictions, and also maybe even continuing to use the word social distancing, which I think in a lot of people's heads harks back to the days when we were told that if you elbow bumped and washed your hands and coughed into the crook of your elbow, everything would be fine, <laughs> which seems like a very long time ago. I think the thing is, right, is for me at least, right, the reason why I have gone from being someone who was saying, you know, two weeks ago, look, you, you just need to start having a conversation about how you have a more flourishing economy and how you can still achieve your social justice, justice objectives in a, a lockdown economy, which of course then leads you to focus heavily on schools, how you can allow young people in flats more time out, et cetera, et cetera, right? That sort of reopening strategy to someone who's become increasingly prone to use the term exit strategy is one. The thing I am finding increasingly frustrating is how difficult it is to mark the homework of any of the four British governments, because they don't won't tell us. In a, in a way, like the SNP government is benefiting from the fact it is being considerably more transparent than anyone else. But I, I just struggle with the fact that I can't work out how to assess anyone's claims unless they not only say here's what we're doing, but here's where we want to go. Right. So to take say the Welsh government, right primarily in the news because Vaughan Gething became the first, but I'm sure not the last minister to leave his mic hot while um, effing and jeffing about some of his own colleagues. But the Welsh government has basically said, well, we're not concerned about our testing target anymore because we have enough for our needs, right? Which is one of those things where like that claim is impossible to assess if we don't know what the Welsh government wants to do. And so I just kind of feel like in an odd way, the reason why the exit strategy stuff is is important beyond people just talking about, oh, we want to be transparent, is that they need to start saying the reason why our target in Scotland is X number of tests is we envisage that restrictions will look like Y. The reason why in Wales we have stopped this target is we have envisaged that our yeah, that the future looks like Z. And I just think the problem we have at the moment yeah, so the reason why the government in London is not being transparent is one, I think there's a an instinctive fondness for lack of transparency in parts of the Downing Street setup. And also because because the Prime Minister is, is not available, the cabinet is split and there's no one to force consensus. But that kind of allows the devolved governments to kind of in the slipstream, purely by going, we need to be more transparent, acting as if they are act- like that's not actually transparency, right? It just it just appears transparent next to like the visibly untransparent guys. Yeah, and I think more generally, probably a lot of work, as Patrick was saying about the phrase exit strategy, probably a lot of work will have to go into reframing how we think about this next phase. Because even if we don't have to stay at home all the time in the sort of lockdown scenario that we've had for the past few weeks, we obviously don't have any of the conditions that would mean that we can return to normal life And this idea that we're going to have a moment where we're all in nightclubs again and hugging that we've been released from lockdown and like all these, all these like things people, you know, people joking about like getting, you know, being out and getting drunk for the first time and what they're going to drink and what they're going to wear. I think that we're not going to have a moment 
like that, that small changes will, will be made really incrementally. But because of a mixture of like the necessary measures that will have to stay in place and people's natural changes in behavior, probably there'll be no moment of euphoria for a very long time. It'll be more a sort of strange way of having to adapt to a new normal where maybe eventually coffee shops can reopen because things like coffee shops and restaurants in in other countries have been the first things to reopen. Mm. And then in other schools, they're different. In other countries, there are different models where schools are the first to open. But, you know, maybe we'll be in a situation where coffee shops are open, but you can only use half of the tables and the person making the coffee has to stand really far back and you're still socially distancing and feeling very distanced from the people around you even though more bits of the economy are up and running again. Yeah and I think when other countries particularly countries like France start doing these progressive sort of iterative measures then I think the pressure's really going to be on not necessarily for our government to do exactly the same thing at the same time, because, you know, we're still, you know, nowhere near at the that stage. But I do think the pressure is going to be on for them to say, like Stephen was saying, to give a little bit more information about why they're making the decisions they are and, and with the view to do what. So we're doing X because we want to be able to let a third of students go to school on this day and then the other third the next day, for example. I think, and also I think for the nation's well-being as well, there needs to be a little bit more granular detail about what sort of social distancing measures look like in the future and what easing the lockdown looks like. Because, you know, when you, I'm sure you've all had this, when you speak to people who are on the front line, a lot of their worries are about people's well-being and, and mental health. People in care homes have been saying that, even if there's no COVID in their care home, the people who, who are staying there have, are sort of losing the will to live because there's just nothing to do and there's no one to see and there's nothing to stimulate them. And, and that's not something that, that can carry on without words of reassurance. So I think they're going to have to try and flesh out what, what they mean by, by these statements about it going on for a calendar year sooner rather than later in terms of you know people's mental well-being as well as everything else. Yeah, and also the interesting the interesting thing is obviously – there has been a lot of talk from Whitehall and Downing Street about maintaining a four-nation strategy. But we're already seeing, with Sturgeon publishing the exit her exit strategy first tour, the broad contours of one, that is already starting to fragment. Arlene Foster said earlier today that it was plausible that different parts of the UK would begin to move at different times. Brandon Lewis went as far as to say um, in an interview with Enniskillen's impartial reporter yesterday that individual counties of Northern Ireland could have lockdown restrictions lifted in turn, which is a slightly weird idea. And already in the Northern Ireland Executive, you have ministers, including Romney Swan, the UP Health Minister, talking about reopening cemeteries and that's become a slightly culture warsy unionist versus nationalist thing so Sturgeon has sort of fired the starting gun on on a process that one will not be as easy an easing of restrictions as people anticipate but also it's gonna will start a very messy likely if you know there's some sort of you know four nation strategy can't be imposed which because of the quirk of the constitutional settlement we have now it it can't really be. Not only will we have restrictions easing a little bit more slowly than people perhaps expect, but also you might be, you know, sitting at home in Berwick looking over the border at a not quite drastically different situation, but a situation that's different enough for people to, or, you know, people watching at home on telly might think, well, 
in Scotland or Wales or less so Northern Ireland because who sitting at home in Leighton Buzzard is going to notice or care what happens there. But people will say, what's happening in Scotland or it's happening here, it's happening there. And it's similar to the point you make about France, I guess, Stephen, that you know, public public opinion or, or public consent will be harder to maintain if, one, if people are impatient anyway, and two, if, you know, in a sort of, in a place that people think is comparable in their heads, they're doing it, they're doing it differently. Yeah, I mean, I, I also think, right, Alva's point about, you know, are you opening cafes or are you opening schools, right? This is this is the other reason why then I think it's just not being sufficiently understood or appreciated, you know, both by, you know, most political journalists and lots of people on the left, right? Is ultimately, right, there is a huge social justice component to the decisions you make about what and how you ease things, right? Like, sorry, like all journalists, I've now become a local journalist because the one place I'm allowed to be is like, you know, well, knocking around my own estate broadly, right? Is the priority for like, people who earn above average like me to go out and like stimulate the local economy or is the priority to find ways for like you know the family of four upstairs to like be able to take their kids outside and for them to go back to school because a different group of people are going to have to make sacrifices for longer in those two different ways of easing the lockdown now, I suspect, right, then that one of the problems with Nicola Sturgeon going first is I suspect there'll be a kind of two-day story. Day one will be everyone goes, oh, it's brilliant, she's been more transparent. Day two, and I guess I actually even mean later on this afternoon, will be when, like, the more wonkish people start to go, oh, but isn't there a downside to this implication or that implication? Which, I mean, is the slight thing here, right? I think it's really important for governments to to be more transparent, but I also think that there's a political risk to it from their perspective, which is one of the reasons why it hasn't happened. And as both the Welsh and the English governments have shown, right, if you aren't transparent about your exit strategy, it's much more easier to declare victory about your targets. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call you ask us. And this question comes from Natan Bram. Is there anything the government slash broader state civil service has done well or got right during this crisis? And if so, what do you think they could or should learn from those successes in the next phases of the response? I think one of the things that they broadly got right from the start, aside from sort of notable exceptions, was keeping parks open and green spaces open as much as they could. Obviously, this didn't happen in certain areas, including where I live in Tower Hamlets. They closed the the biggest park, Victoria Park, for a while, but they had to reopen it under pressure. 
I think that's been good when you speak to people who are um, living under lockdown in other countries where they don't have that luxury, where they can actually go out to, to green spaces. You know, it does sound much, much tougher. And in terms of the sort of social angle that has shown that there there has been a recognition by the government or local authorities at least that there are people living in you know very high density housing with hardly any space with families of young children with no garden no sort of balcony or terrace or sort of anywhere to stretch their legs and I think it's also shown a sort of good forethought in in terms of the fact that we are going to be in this situation for a while you know it's it's one thing to say you can't leave your you're flat for four weeks, you'll just have to exercise inside. But the fact that they they let the park stay open suggests that they knew that this was going to be far longer than the original, whatever the, the time periods that were being spouted at the time, Boris Johnson's 12 weeks or the three weeks before review type time periods. So that was sort of both, I think, a good, good and fair decision on the part of well, it was local authorities that make the individual decisions, but also it was a sign that they knew that we were sort of bedding into this for for longer than perhaps the public knew at the beginning. I would say as much as um, it it hasn't been taken up by as many people as the government hoped that the um, Robert Jenrick saying that loosening planning restrictions on restaurants to enable them to go takeaway, it's a sort of change to planning regulations that right-wing think tanks get funded you know to the tune of millions of pounds over several decades to to affect and 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 it was um done in one fell swoop and you know similarly i'm sure tony tony croston could have only dreamed of a world where you could you know walk down to your local italian restaurant and pick up a tray of carbonara although (laughs) you know in his dream everyone would be eating it at nice tables in the street not returning to their flats to eat it in you know semi-darkness but i think that was i think that was a good um good bit of policy uh, which i have availed of plenty of times yeah i think odd i actually i wrote my column in the eye last week was was on this and how what i think is interesting is that jenrick is the 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 secretary of state who has both had to tweak his measures the least but he's also the one who has received the least applause in the in the media including in kind of the sort of classically loyal tory press and what I think that most of his decisions have, that his correct decisions have all emanated from the same thing. And I would basically essentially say that the two things the government has absolutely done completely right, both of which are things which other governments in Europe have not done, are one, keeping parks open, and also supplementary to that, for the most part, being willing to you know actually be more assertive in going, most people are following the rules and councils should not be closing them. And two, those tweaks that make it easier for businesses to pivot to delivery, of which not as many as the government hoped and the Treasury hoped have done, but many have done. And what both of those things have in common, as Anoush says, right, is a realisation that we might be living like this for a long time. And I feel like, I don't know what others think, but it feels to me that when the government has done things right, it's because they've gone, let's assume the worst case scenario. And when the government and I'm talking about all four, when everything all four governments have done that has been inadequate has been based on the idea that tomorrow, like a scientist will discover that like disco music destroys the novel coronavirus. And everything they've done that has been effective has been based on, well, look, let's assume we have to live like this for an indefinite period. Yeah, I was also going to mention the Robert Jenrick moves. And it's a point that Stephen, as you were saying, you made in your eye column. I also think... It's interesting the policy levers that they didn't pull 
I mean, there was maybe very little prospect of forcing people to stay in their homes completely and not sanctioning one form of daily exercise. But that obviously has been the case in other countries. And as you say, it's reflective. I mean, probably like reflective of the political climate here that that would have been so difficult to reinforce. But I think it's reflective of the idea that this is longer term and that it is possible to still be outside and do so safely. And actually, you know, most people are following the rules and people shouldn't be criminalized for going outside a bit in the way that you see in reporting from other countries with, you know, like a little Italian couple on the street and the reporter says, why are you outside? You're meant to stay indoors the whole time. And they say, oh, you know, just every three days or so we take a little stroll because we go insane inside. I think that just the consensus around that, it's a a simple thing, but I think just an important corrective to the idea that people will have to stay completely locked down for a very long time. And it's like just a much more sustainable way of doing this longer term to limit people, people's movements outdoors without restricting it completely. As you were saying, that occurred to me another sort of thing that I think has been done well in terms of, you know, this going on for a long time, not just here, but in the world. Obviously, this week I uh, interviewed Gordon Brown, which is a deeply surreal experience to be wearing a shirt and hoodie in your bedroom, talking to like someone whose voice you've heard on TV and the radio throughout your entire life. You, you weren't on webcam, were you? No, I I, I, oh. I was I was not on webcam because I mean say I realized I I kind of tantalized people saying make it made it seem like the curtains were like you know had like I don't know pictures of penises on them. The the truth is is that I don't like the curtains in our bedroom, right? But it was one of those things where like you know I, I can't remember yeah like there's some kind of family I mean maybe they're family alien, but uh, the point is I don't like them very much. And obviously it's one of those things which before lockdown I didn't mind. And now, like, their presence in the background of, like, Zoom calls, it just, I just, it, it, it really aggravates me. I, I, I really, and I can't, if I see them in shot, I'm continually trying to get them out of shot. And it's just, it, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad juju. But one of the things that, you know, he's talked about is, you know, it's important to remember that, that yeah, he said, in, at the moment, national governments are all caught in this thing where their voters are understandably angry about them for not getting enough PPE. So they're all scrabbling around for, to, to kind of get as much as they can and they aren't focusing enough on supply and on increasing the overall supply and one of the things that yeah and I think you can also make legitimate questions about how effective yeah the Lansley reforms have shown to be in their first major crisis etc cetera, etc cetera. but I think some of the reporting about oh you know some PPE went to China some PPE from the United Kingdom went to went to Germany etc cetera, etc cetera. like actually like this is the worst possible time for governments to be like going, no, 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 it's mine, it's mine. There needs to be a concerted effort to increase global production and an openness to accept that as long as PPE is arriving in your hospitals, it doesn't matter where it comes from, provided you and everyone are increasing production. Because the only way that we will ever be able to, yeah, in terms of as we move into the next phase, it's not just about how we move into the next phase. It's how does the global South move into the next phase? How do much smaller countries, which yeah, just cannot scale up the necessary level of manufacturing, move to the next phase? And I actually think that willingness to, to not just go shut, shut, shut the supply chains is a useful lesson going forward. And who knows, may even have some applicability to whether or not one seeks another extension or the type of the flavour of Brexit that we decide we actually do want to prioritise. Yeah, I agree. That was totally the right policy move to, I mean, at that point, 
PP was needed in China and that was the best way of responding to the global pandemic. And as Matt Hancock has said, we've received more PP from China in return as a result that like definitely a model of global cooperation is the way forward. I also really related to your point, Stephen, about the weirdness of Gordon Brown being in your bedroom. I really had the same feeling with Rebecca Long-Bailey and Lisa Nandy for those podcast interviews in our first couple of weeks of lockdown and I actually said that to Lisa and Andy and she said that she used to have the same feeling when Ed Balls was her boss and she would put on the radio or the tv in her bedroom and Ed Balls was there and she used to joke to him about (laughs) him being in her bedroom in the mornings. Yeah no no I had a similar I was watching Sky News with my dad yesterday and um, it said oh on tonight's papers we have uh, Kate Andrews from The Spectator and the new status of Stephen Bush and he turned to me and said how do you know that guy? I was like, you... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, no, it's, it's weird because in terms of like, the, you know, the, the Gordon Brown thing, a while ago there was this, I mean, obviously there's nothing more tedious than journalists fighting about journalism on Twitter, but there was this thing about like, are journalists out of touch where you had loads of people falling over themselves to be like, you know, like I grew up in, you know, a, in the midst of a gang war, et cetera, et cetera. And what I thought it completely missed is that ultimately – the thing that whenever I speak to like a prime minister from the past and exposes like how out, like ultimately, of course, we're out of touch because like I completely get what you mean, Alva, when you say, oh, it was like that with Lisa Nandy. But I realize I've become sufficiently out of touch that like David Cameron's like, oh, my first prime minister I've covered, a serious figure. Gordon Brown or Tony Blair, it's like, oh my God, the, the prime minister from telly is calling. Oh, I better <laughs> yeah. drop everything. Whereas like, yeah. Boris Johnson's Definitely. just a bloke from work. Like, and like, <laughs> yeah. And, and of course, that makes you out of touch. It doesn't matter what your background is. If you are covering power up close for like any amount of time, you become out of touch. I so agree with that. Any new Labour minister, even if they're like not at all of interest or relevance now, <laughs> if I ever have to interview them, I'm just like, I'm just like. <gasps> they're yeah, and it's this, it's this thing where like um, I've occasionally had that, you know, when you write something and someone gets in touch and like from their office and like so-and-so wants to speak to you, like. Obviously, I would say yes to anyone in in that situation. But yeah, it's just like even a kind of like mid-tier New Labour era minister for the Today programme. I'm like, of course, I I will rearrange my schedule to be told why my column was bad by by the junior minister for paperclips in 1998. Whereas, yeah, like if like, you know, you get like, the Chancellor of the Exchequer is very displeased. It's like blow it out his ass, but yeah, and it's it, which is just an insane way to think about <laughs> to think about politics or power. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Patrick McGuire, our political editor Stephen Bush, our Britain editor Anush Chalian, and my fellow political correspondent Alva Ray. It's produced by Nick Hilton, and theme music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons.